Welcome to This Is Not About Your Body, a body neutrality podcast where we talk about all the real shit body image issues are actually about because they are never just about the way you look. I am your host, Jesse Neeland, and today I have with me Jessica Angle, a licensed marriage and family therapist, dating coach, couples counselor, drama therapist, the founder and CEO of the Relationship Center in California, and a co-host of the Relationship Podcast, I Love You Too. Jessica works especially with introverts, trauma survivors, and highly sensitive people who feel insecure in their relationships to overcome anxiety, heal trauma, and finally enjoy the deep connections that they crave. So I'm very excited to introduce you to her. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I've been listening to your podcast, so it feels very funny to be, it's like being in the TV. (laughs) I love that. Um, So I'm going to have you start off just by talking a little bit about yourself and Mm -hmm. your approach to therapy and coaching. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, um, I'm in the Bay area. I am working as a psychotherapist and coach and have for over 13 years. I identify as a highly sensitive person and an introvert and an intimacy geek. I think relationships are the best thing. And that's what I love to help people with. Um, yeah, so I geek out on that all the time, and I'm awesome. looking forward to chatting with you about that. Um, in terms of the way that I work, I I am a trained drama therapist, so I like to bring in play, um, and I'm also trauma-informed, so I think a lot about how uh, childhood trauma in particular, but also childhood, or excuse me, um, trauma from adult relationships impacts how we form relationships um, as adults. I do a yeah. lot of work around, like, self-compassion, healing attachment wounds, that sort of thing. Uh, Amazing. Um, I feel like I'm good at a lot of things. And uh, only in the last couple of years have I been really working on like partnership relationship stuff. I find it incredibly challenging. And I'm more interested in it now than I ever was, I think, because it like when you actually find someone it's worth working on, you're, you're suddenly like, oh, there is a lot to do here. (laughs) There is. Yeah. Because we don't see parts of ourselves until we get that close with someone, particularly, I think our family relationships, you know, I I think I remember you, you got engaged, you're Mm -hmm. on the path towards marriage. So once we become married, this is an experience I had with my husband, all your family stuff gets to come up in a different way because they're family all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ooh, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought of that as like a label identity shift. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So I know that you have a lot of experience working with family systems Mm -hmm. and specifically the impact uh, on the family system when there is a narcissist for a parent and how that impacts the kids. So before we dive into all of that, I just want to get a definition from you on both uh, family systems for anybody who hasn't heard that and Mm -hmm. narcissist. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I think we're probably talking mostly about dysfunctional family systems Mm. and what's called narcissistic family systems. So dysfunctional family systems, uh, if you've been in one, you know it, It, there's often, (laughs) you grow up with a sense of perhaps uh, there's a lack of boundaries. You're either enmeshed or distant. There's very poor communication. Perhaps there's a lot of criticism or Mm. yelling or no communication at all. Oftentimes emotions are seen as weakness um, and, you know, people don't tend to feel, particularly the children don't tend to feel loved, respected, and seen um, because there's just not enough safety and not enough emotional attunement. Uh Narcissistic family systems are sort of, I think of them as the like dysfunctional family system on steroids. They're Mm. like, generally there's at least one parent who is a grandiose narcissist um, although it's also possible to be in a narcissistic, narcissistic family system where the narcissist is a grandparent or is maybe not even alive. Mm. And the idea in that system is that the narcissist is the one who's in control. And they're often the one who is calling the shots in terms of the family rules and where attention goes. Um, the children in a narcissistic family system are what are called narcissistic extensions. And so they're often used to lift the narcissist up. So an example of this would be, um, say, a parent who's narcissistic, who is really interested in wealth, fame, and beauty, who perhaps really encourages their child to work really hard in school, mm-hmm. to get really good grades, to go to the really prestigious school because that's something that is going to make them look 
a higher status. Or perhaps um, coming back to body image, they might pick at their child's body and yeah. really encourage them to um, be a particular body shape and size to fit conventional beauty standards. Uh, so narcissist is one of those words. Um, I think we have like sort of two concepts right now in the mainstream. One is just the casual use of it to mean someone who's like really self-absorbed. And then also there is more of the like therapeutic definition, but I think even that is really misunderstood uh, to be sort of like, yeah, maybe God complex. I don't know, like self-absorbed times 10. Um, so do you have like a, a working definition that you use or are you talking about the diagnosis of a narcissist when you talk yeah. about it? Great question. So I tend to think of, uh, when I say narcissist, there's there are two sort of categories I think of. One is a person who really fits narcissistic personality disorder criteria mm. in the DSM. Mm -hmm. um, so that is one particular kind of narcissist. Now, we're all on the narcissism spectrum, right? Sure. And so there are definitely people who aren't going to fit the narcissistic personality disorder criteria who are still going to be very self-absorbed. And all of us are going to have moments of self-absorption where we stop seeing people entirely as whole people and we become quite self-focused. So I think that I, I, I'm hearing what you're saying, that there, there can be ways in which in sort of pop culture, the word narcissist yeah. is thrown around really casually. And I think that can have damage. And I mm -hmm. think that narcissism is more rampant than sometimes our culture is able to acknowledge and heal. Sure. I like that you hold space for the nuance of that because I've certainly talked to people uh, who are more of like, if it doesn't fit the DSM five criteria, then it doesn't count. Don't use this language. Um, and I certainly see why there's merit in that view, because, of course, like it starts to dilute concepts and ideas and all of that. But also, absolutely, pretty much everything's a spectrum, right? So like just right. making space for the fact that it can be a pattern without being a diagnosis. And that still is going to impact people in a similar way. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the words I tend to use if narcissism doesn't feel quite right are self-absorbed. Mm. Another term that's in my field is, you know, there are adult children of emotionally immature parents. Ooh, so, yeah. you know, the core of all of these is, is the parent able to be present with the child mm. in a safe, warm way where they're really seeing the child for their needs and, and wants rather than being so self-focused they can't see that person. So now I just want to ask a bunch of questions about narcissism. I know I have a whole bunch of other stuff queued up, but um, do you have like a, a short explanation of why a person sort of learns to view other people as an extension of themselves in this yeah. way? Yeah. Yeah. So the heart of narcissism tends to go back to early childhood trauma and other narcissistic family systems. And um, generally, so there's a uh, young defense that we all employ early, early, early in childhood called splitting, which is where we see things in black and white. We see the world in black and white. We see people in black and white. We have a very hard time holding mixtures when we're say mm, one. Yeah. When we have the kind of emotional safety and mentorship that we need from secure parents, we grow out of that way of looking at the world, at least for the most part. Everybody goes back to seeing course, things yeah. as good and bad when they're under stress. But when, um, when you have that tendency or that defense, and then your parents also um, employ that regularly, you just have no opportunity to be able to sit with a cognitive dissonance of you can have done a difficult thing, but also still be good. Yeah. Okay. So at that point, do they then have to basically decide that they're good and everyone else is bad? Like, is it just sort of the, the logic has to follow if that's what you're upholding? You got it. And so okay. to see themselves as an extension or to see others as an extension of them, it becomes in-group, out-group, right? Yeah. Very shame-based. It's very power-based. So if you are my child and I see you as an extension of me because you're in my in-group, you're going to need to be good. Otherwise, that means I'm not good. 
Ooh, got it. Man, I, this is, yeah, as you say, so much more common, I think, as a pattern and, a, and a, an experience than it is as a diagnosis. I have so many examples jumping to mind here. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so one of the things about this that you and I talked about before is that while most people, when they hear the term objectification, go to a place of sexual objectification, um, obviously that's a huge topic when it comes to body image, but there are other kinds too. And this is one of those areas that that's sort of fertile ground for objectification. So could you talk a little bit about how that happens in a family system like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we can talk about what happens in the family system, and then we can also talk about like how we start to recreate that as adults, which I think is okay. really juicy in terms of what gets in the way of building really healthy relationships. Yeah. So um, in childhood, you know, we talked about a parent, say, um, communicating to their child that they need to fit a very particular box, right? So you need to be, say, thin, or you need to be making A grades, Right. So in that, the parent is really not allowing for the child to be a a full human. Right. Um, And they're really they're implementing a lot of control. Okay, Um, we don't control. You know, I think I put this into words. We don't naturally control others when we're really seeing them as whole beings. I think it's Mm. much easier psychologically to try and control beings that we're not fully seeing because in that way, right. We don't have as much empathy Mm -hmm. for them. So I think the other ways that this can show up are um, in particular around emotions, right? So children have a lot of emotions often in dysfunctional families and narcissistic family systems, only certain emotions are allowed. Right. And so in that way, the, the parents are, cutting off a significant part of of the child's emotional world, right? And is that because the parent just doesn't want to deal with it? Or it's more of what you were saying before, like they view their kids' feelings as an extension of them? They view their kids' feelings as an extension of them. They probably also don't want to deal with it. Sure, yeah, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) They are um, typically with emotionally immature parents, they do not have a lot of distress tolerance. And so if the child is calm, they can feel calm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that the objectification just comes in kind of trying to repress or erase a part of the child's emotional yeah. world, which is very common, I think. So objectification in this way is like dehumanization, essentially. You're taking a person who is a three-dimensional, whole human and saying, no, thank you. You fit in this box, please. That's what I can tolerate. That's what right. feels good to me and feels affirming to me. And everything else is unwelcome. That's right. And I think another piece in here is that often in these families, the parents are are seeing the child for the role they fulfill. Right. And so um, in some of these families, for example, some uh, more self-absorbed parents will actually treat a child like a surrogate spouse. Um, Mm. and so they will confide in them things that they shouldn't be confiding in them. They will look to them for, um, comfort and connection. And so in that, they're really seeing the child more as how can you fulfill this unmet need of intimacy rather than seeing, oh, you are a child yeah, and I should be taking care of you. Right. So in that way, the objectification is, I think, maybe a little closer to like the classic thing of, oh, if you look at a woman and you only see her for her body, you've objectified her, you've turned her into an object. In this way, the object is like caretaker. You got it. Or yeah, intimacy provider. Right. Right. Or with the narcissistic parent, if they're say looking at the, the golden child that they think reflects to them their own goodness, the role is to lift them up. So sort of narcissistic supply. Mm. Narcissistic supply, is that the term? Yes. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So then I'd love to have you talk a little bit about what this dynamic of being either forced into a box, stripped of your full humanity, or kind of being, even if you're like praised and celebrated in that golden child version, it's like that Mm -hmm. feels good, but also it's inappropriate and, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How does this impact a kid's development of sense of self and sense of self-worth? 
Right. So generally, it's it's just very damaging for both of those things. A lot of yeah. uh, people who grow up in these kinds of family systems, they grow up feeling unworthy, um, unseen. There's sort of the flip side, too, yeah. where, you, you know, the person can grow up and be more self-absorbed and objectify others. Um, so it can kind of go both ways. Interesting. Um so in terms of feeling unworthy, if we were to take like, uh, I have uh, something I call the four body image avatars in my book, the high achiever would fit really well into the golden child kind of mm -hmm. deal here. Um, so somebody who feels like their worth comes from being very special, very chosen, sort of celebrated and upheld for following the rules, often the rules of a narcissist. Um why why isn't that enough you know what i mean mm. why does why do they still feel unworthy why is that the flip side of it right so ah so juicy so yeah. the fact that a golden child exists means that the opposite can exist right so generally in family systems if there's more than one child there's a golden child and there's a scapegoat but it also mm. can be a lost child if it's just one child it, that child tends to flip between being the golden child and the scapegoat okay mm. And so if you're a golden child and you grow up with that sense of, um, oh, I'm good, you also know in the back of your mind that it's possible to fall from grace if you don't follow the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, what that generally means is allowing your humanity in. Yeah. Okay? Uh, and so it, you're left with kind of a surface level confidence, but an emptiness internally. Ooh. So this is uh, exactly what I see happen so often with sexual objectification, which is like a person, especially a woman who fits conventional beauty ideals and has been praised and celebrated and put on pedestal for this their entire life. Often you you would think if you weren't like in this space that they would be the most confident, right? Like congratulations to you, everybody approves. But often it's exactly the opposite. And there's so much shame around uh, basically like knowing that it's a fake knowing that they have all this extra humanity and and nobody wants it and so they just like live in this super shamey space yeah 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 well and that makes perfect sense to me in terms of shame coming back to that kind of narcissistic family system the narcissist is doing everything in reaction to shame they're doing mm. their very best not to feel bad Ooh. Right. And so they're doing a lot of very sophisticated things to make other people feel shame for them because Ooh. they cannot tolerate it. Oh, that's so rich. OK, so they are. Placing shame onto others because why? How does that keep? How do, yeah. How does that serve them exactly? Well, let's come back to the splitting. They see things in black and white right? Good and bad. And so if the world is good and bad, their greatest fear is that they're bad, uh -huh. right? And so if that is their greatest fear and they have no tools to process shame, to acknowledge their own humanity, to be with vulnerability, mm -hmm. then they're going to have to repress that. And that's where you see grandiose narcissists doing really ridiculous things yeah. to put others down and lift themselves up. Yeah. Okay. And so they're going to do that with their kids in, again, lots of kind of explicit and implicit, subtle ways mm. so that that child grows up again with kind of that veneer of I'm approved on, on this level, but I feel a lot of shame yeah. and I don't even fully understand why. Yeah. I do think uh, a pattern that I, I notice in my relationship is my partner really doesn't go to a place of like win or lose. Uh, he, he was an only child. I'm convinced this is why. But like uh, I go to a place of like one of us is right and one of us is wrong all the time. Mm -hmm. And it suits me for him to be wrong. I would much prefer him to be wrong at all moments of every day. <laughs> and so when I catch myself in this space of like, I need to make you wrong so that I'm right. And he reminds me like, I don't think either of us is wrong. I feel very confused. It is a jarring. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a lovely fake sentiment. There's no way nobody wins and loses here. Like, but it really is such a different dynamic than I learned. I mean, and part of that is, well, there's a lot of things, but uh, yeah, having siblings and just a totally different way of understanding the world. Right. 
but I can totally see even in myself a space where I I want to make someone else wrong so that I get to be right. Yes. And no nuance. All nuances yes. out the window in that moment. Absolutely. You're that one-year-old splitting. Yeah, totally. And you oh can't even gosh. conceive of something else. Yeah, literally, like, throughout our relationship, he has done this so many times. And every time my brain just buffers, like, what? What? Yeah. What? What option is that? Right. <laughs> is that right. a real thing? Um, <laughs> okay, so there's also this idea, I think, that you're getting at, which is sort of when you inappropriately pedestalize any aspect of a human and uh, sort of the instant awareness that having been pedestalized for that aspect, you also know that there is like the fall from grace. You know that it can be taken away. It's conditional. Um, it also just, it, it wreaks havoc on your ability to value yourself for your whole humanity. Yes. Like I'll sometimes tell clients that if society had always and only been obsessed with like, you know, uh, focusing on assessing, praising, criticizing, like our sense of humor or math skills, I would be a sense of humor or math neutrality coach. Like that's, <laughs> it would be just as damaging. It's just not what we have right now. Right. Like Absolutely. it's anything. Cause it, it's that box and it's that stripping of humanity. That's right. That's right. It's our shutting ourselves off to what is so about another person or about ourselves. Yeah. And I think you're right on the, the more we do that to ourselves, the more we do that to others and vice versa. And in this particular dynamic, you're really describing that the thing being like celebrated and praised and everything pedestalized is their ability to attune to someone else, their ability to center someone else, their ability to tend to someone else. What specifically is the outcome of that mm -hmm. on a kid and as they sort of grow into adulthood? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, um, as a kid, it's not being able to attune to their intrinsic sense of motivation, right? Ooh, right? So really conforming themselves, and it might be in terms of body and fashion, it might be in terms of what their teachers are wanting, in terms of academic performance. Yeah. So they're kind of like, you know, floating in the wind, every other person's desire becomes what pushes them along, though they will probably always feel most beholden to the narcissists or the self-absorbed parents' desires. Everything will kind of go back to that template. Yeah. And so when they grow up into adulthood, you know, the thing that I'm most interested in is relationships. So I, I work with a lot of people who come from these family systems and they are really struggling in relationships because there's all these subtle ways in which they uh, have a hard time seeing their own humanity and mm -hmm. believing that their own humanity could be accepted and doing yeah. the same for others. So that might look like, you know, in terms of beauty standards, maybe they have very rigid standards for themselves or for their partners. Um, it could be beyond beauty, having very rigid standards. I need a partner who makes X amount of money. I need a partner who is this woke in this way, yeah, yeah. right? It can come up in lots of different ways. The rigidity is the piece that really sticks out to me and tends to make it nearly impossible for them to get close to someone, mm -hmm. right? So it becomes this amazing defense against being with someone's humanity and being with their own, since that probably feels pretty terrifying. Yeah. In your experience, is it more likely that the things they're rigid about are the rules that have been handed to them by the narcissist? Or is it more like they learn to adopt a rigid way of thinking? And even if they come up with their own rules or standards or whatever, like they just have to have an externalized type of standard because they didn't learn to sort of do that or or validate that inside themselves with nuance? Yeah, I think that it it, it kind of depends on the person. Um, mm. So I do think that it can absolutely, they can sort of, for example, I work with a lot of people who are looking for their partner. When they think of their ideal partner, it's this kind of very st stereotypical box that their parent would approve of. Right. I also though do see, like for example, clients who perhaps their parents didn't talk with them a lot about relationships because in that family system, they weren't valued as much. Mm -hmm. They may not have a lot of really clear messages from their parents, but they have a lot of clear messages from the narcissistic family system that is our society, uh, right? About okay. what an attractive person looks like. And so it can sometimes be a mixture of those. Yeah. It's unusual for them to have a clear sense of what they genuinely want and be rigid about that. Because that takes a fair amount of self-awareness, right? 
Also, like, of all the things you could be rigid about, that seems like a pretty safe one. <laughs> right, right. Um, okay, so you mentioned motivation, which is not something that I've thought about a whole lot. I, I do work a lot in the space with people who don't have access to their own like emotions, their own needs and desires for any number of reasons that they either didn't develop it or have rejected and cut it off. Mm -hmm. um, but the impact of not having intrinsic motivation feels really unique to me because it's like, if you're exclusively reacting to someone's, you know, praise or punishment. Yeah. Like how do you even know what to do or what to move forward? Yeah. Like it, that does feel like a big wrench because even then when you're doing things that might feel really self-affirming, uh, they're coming from a place of avoiding punishment or gaining, you know, status or praise. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. It robs that stuff of its ability to affirm and feel good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, and that just one thought about that. Yeah. I think of intrinsic motivation as um, really being able to tap into the positive side of sympathetic drive or even of anger, right? Mm -hmm. We need some power and energy to tune into what we want internally and go for it, right? And I think in these narcissistic family systems, when we're dealing with shame, shame is an incredible dampener. I don't know how you feel when you feel ashamed, but I feel like I don't want to move, right? right. Oh, yeah. And Total. so- Shut yeah. down for me. Total collapse. And yeah. so if you've been if you've grown up being filled up with someone else's shame, right? It's going to just inherently be so difficult to tune into our own intrinsic mm. sense of motivation. And I think interestingly, the the sort of healing path for a lot of the the people that come out of these systems is getting back in touch with anger. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which kind of moves the shame moves out of the shame towards yeah. that intrinsic motivation. Ooh, okay. That is interesting. That's different than, yeah, it's different than those sort of uh, decision-making motivation or in intention setting. It's literally yeah. the energy of it. Like Absolutely, yeah. That's yeah. fair. So, okay. Tell me then about, you mentioned the rigid beauty and body ideals being one way that this can show up as well as other ideals that I'm hearing either align with the narcissist person in the family system or more like the broader social hierarchies in a narcissistic society. Mm -hmm. um, talk about the impact that has, like what would be a person's experience of being critical of their own or other people's bodies or being especially mm -hmm. attached to like fitting conventional ideals in some way at that point? Yeah, so let's imagine a hypothetical person who is dating to find their partner. Um, this may show up in a different couple different ways. One, they have the sense of, well, you know, I need to look a very particular way in order to find my partner. And so that's going to perhaps initiate a lot of sort of um, uh, self-improvement, I'm putting in quotes, mm, right? Mm -hmm. And a kind of obsession with that. Um, and just a constant sense of um, self-criticism about how they're yeah, looking, yeah. how they're appearing to others. Um, and, you know, it may also, I find that's often paired with a lot of sort of um, really uh, damaging core beliefs, like there's something wrong with me that mm -hmm. I'm single, um, that nobody's ever really going to want me. Like yeah. nobody's, if somebody really gets to know me, they're going to leave, right? So that kind of taps into yeah. more of the anxious attachment side of things where they're- So just a lot of shame. Just a lot of just shame. Just more shame, yeah. Yeah. Ugh. And so when they get into a relationship, they may be holding parts of themselves back, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to appear more attractive or more yeah, secure. Yeah. And that doesn't tend to work, right? That whatever fear yeah. is there, whatever other parts are there, it start to spill out. And then they may also have a tendency to be attracted to people who are more self-absorbed or maybe more uh, also on the avoidant attachment spectrum. So it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. They yeah, criticize yeah. themselves, criticize themselves, try to get as small as possible. The uh -huh. other person doesn't end up being available. And then all of a sudden they're alone. And that confirms a lot of their yeah. negative core beliefs. 
And do you feel like the draw or finding attractive people with an avoidant attachment style or people who also tend to be self-absorbed, is that just like the repetition of the pattern because it's familiar or is there something specific about reenacting that? Yeah, I mean, I think so repetition compulsion, as Freud put it, um, there's something about it that is about familiarity. Uh, I think that there's also something about it where there's a desire to actually heal that pattern. So the desire, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right, is to go into the relationship with the person who is emotionally unavailable and to this time have a different experience. Yeah. If I could only be beautiful enough, if I could yeah. only be um, not needy, this mm-hmm. person slash unconsciously my dad, my mom yeah. would finally be able to love me in the way that I need so it's a really it's a very like your heart's in the right place your unconscious mind's in the right place it's trying to get healing Mm -hmm. it just if we don't learn how to choose people differently we just keep having the same experience over and over yeah I do feel so much like compassion and tenderness for that need, uh, often unconscious need to like write the story again, but with a different ending. Mm -hmm. And I feel like so many people will come in and be like, I don't know why I keep making this decision or being attracted to this kind of person. And it's like, oh, because I want that ending for you too. Like, of course course. you do. Yeah. It's such a good instinct. It's just sometimes Mm -hmm. we do it with the wrong person. Right. And I think that's part of the healing process for people who've grown up in these sort of objectifying families is to be able to really identify when we're in relationship with people who don't objectify us, who say in the middle of a conflict, I don't think there's anybody who's wrong here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Um, Also, I think, you know, we, we touched on like the self-worth, basically how a a kid in this space might learn to value themselves Mm -hmm. for, you know, the same things they're being valued for. And I also see among a lot of people who maybe identify as like people pleasers or caretakers um, that when you have learned that your value to others is in serving them, basically centering, attuning to and taking care of them, you're going to really be attracted to someone who wants that. And it might feel actually super bad to be with someone who doesn't want that, even if it's equal and luscious in so many other ways. You're like, well... (laughs) What am I bringing to it now? Right. It threatens. it. Yes, absolutely. Well, and I think that's a great example of how the dynamics from that family of origin get played out in relationships such that we're not challenged to heal that inner child that's still hurting. Mm-hmm. So let's say um, we're talking about sounds like we're talking about an empath with somebody who's self-absorbed, maybe somebody who's narcissistic mm-hmm who then decides, okay, I'm going to try something new and I'm going to be with somebody who's maybe more of an empath. Mm -hmm. And within that space, that inner child who used to be told, well, you're good because you're acting the way I want you to, you're good because you're, you look a particular way is not getting that feedback anymore. right? Right. And so they feel alone and scared and like something is wrong right yeah. oftentimes in a lot of these families the, the narcissist can be explosive can be mean mm. at times so there can even be a, a real intense kind of ptsd reaction to this doesn't feel right like something yeah. bad could happen according to that inner child who had the experience of if i'm not yeah. being the caregiver something something goes bad something goes yeah. wrong Of course. I also feel like uh, with sexual objectification, a very common experience for women who are doing this healing work and choosing someone different is to feel an extraordinary amount of insecurity and loss when they partner with someone who doesn't objectify their body. Yeah. Because they're so used to taking their sense of confidence from their partner being like, you're so hot. I love your body. Like, I love your ass, whatever the hell the thing is that for someone to just be like, I love you and I'm so happy we're together. It feels like an insult. Absolutely. Yeah. I think they they can tend to feel um, all of a sudden alone, like Mm -hmm. they almost like there's not receptors for the other kind of care. Right. Ooh. Of course. And there literally aren't because they didn't develop them. Of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
yeah, that can be a really confusing healing part of the journey. So tell me then, (laughs) what does the work of healing this look like? So this adult is noticing all these things. They are recognizing that it is basically causing them to not have the kind of relationships or life they want. What do they do? How do you heal this? Yeah. So I think the first step is even acknowledging that your family of origin didn't always treat you like a whole human being. And Mm -hmm. that process can actually be pretty intensive for some people, or it can take a long time because the whole, the original family system typically operates on denial. And Mm -hmm. they were really told for years that all was well in the family, things are good, you know, as long as this self-absorbed parent is happy, everything's okay. Right. And a lot of the, the more damaging pieces where they were, maybe there's gaslighting, there's denial, there's dismissal. So there, there tends to need to be an extensive process of really excavating experiences with somebody else who is loving, who has, was not in that family system, who can kind of Mm -hmm. say, no, that's sound like what you should have experienced as a little one so that might be a coach might be a a therapist or a a friend Um, so really doing that work to like come to terms with that being part of your story Um, so that would be one piece I think the next piece once you've really embraced okay I come from one of these family systems it's messed with how I see myself and others is to really look at how how do I objectify myself and others Mm. Mm-hmm. where do I struggle to let in another person's humanity or let my own in? Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that some people will tend towards like struggling to turn to, towards themselves with kindness and love. Some people will tend more to struggle with that turning towards others. And, mm-hmm. but a lot of people will have kind of a little bit of a mix, yeah. right? So you want to look at both your relationship with yourself. How do you talk to yourself when you're struggling And then also look at what kind of relationships are you building? Are you choosing people who just objectify you sexually and struggle Mm -hmm. to show up, say, when you are in need or when you just want to like have fun, not in a sexual way? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Are you talking to yourself as though you have to fit a particular box in order to be loved? Um, and so just really getting hip to like, how are the ways that I objectify myself and others? And when you see yourself doing that, taking opposite action. So instead of say, uh, going on another date with the person who doesn't seem to be able to really be with you on an emotional level, choosing the person who maybe seems a little boring, but is very interested in, in who you are as a totality and what's going to happen in that is just what we were talking about. It's going to be really uncomfortable. Yeah, it's going to be, be like, weird what? and confusing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this does not feel right. And so I think in that, just knowing that's very normal and recognizing mm-hmm. that that is trauma material coming up and asking to be yeah. healed. Yeah. In terms of doing that trauma work, some of the things that I, I think are most powerful, uh, you know, certainly having um, a healer on your team who can be with you in that. Yeah. Um, I I think self mindful self-compassion is really huge. It's kind of a, a one particular form of self-parenting, which mm-hmm. is vital for people who've grown up without em- emotionally mature parents. Yeah. We have to go in and develop an inner parent who can say the things that we needed to hear growing up, Mm -hmm. who can say things like, it's okay if, you know, you didn't do great at that work project. I love you, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Yeah. So that's, that's a few things I can keep going. I don't want (laughs) to monologue at you. Well, no, I think it's all super interesting. So the process of admitting it accepting that this happened, naming it for what it is, stepping out of denial. There's something in that that I think is interesting. It makes sense that that takes, that that can take a long time and be really hard because other forms of like gaslighting and abuse, well, I guess part of it is that it's in childhood as opposed to just like an adult experience, but it's also that it's where your self identity and worth were cultivated. It's so wrapped up in that, that you don't get to just be like, oh, they were lying and bad. 
because if they were lying in bed, literally, who am I? <laughs> and, and what makes me okay? I mean, it, it just yeah. would collapse so much. I could imagine that being really difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of like asking a fish to describe water. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I, it's like something I'll say when people start recognizing the role that diet culture has played and how it's, yeah. you know, a lot of gaslighting there and everything. It's yeah. the feeling of like the rug ripped out from underneath you. But in this case, it, it's also like it rips you out from underneath you at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. It can be very destabilizing. Yeah. Um, also, the the idea of learning or identifying, I guess, the ways in which you objectify yourself and others. I want to hear more about this mm -hmm. in part because I feel like I struggle with this along trauma and gender lines. It's mm -hmm. one of the reasons I think it's hard in my relationship to be with someone who like presents as a man and my brain says thanks to a whole bunch of trauma that like men don't get to be whole people it's like mm -hmm. a, it's a mm -hmm. it's a whole thing right yes. and that I think is why it's so much more difficult for me in those moments to stay in contact with compassion and nuance and all of that stuff so it's something that I've been working through but I feel like the question of how do you identify that and then what do you do about it is like our entire culture needs that conversation mm -hmm. in a very big way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I don't think most people are aware that that's what we're doing, stripping another person of their full humanity in mm -hmm. these moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like, let me make sure I have your question, right? Is it, how do we even know when we're objectifying Kind of. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. both questions. Like it, first up, how do you even know or notice? Because I think it took me mm -hmm. basically 30 years to figure out that that's what was happening. Mm -hmm. And then the last, you know, however many years I've been working on it to to do the second step. But it, it right. really did not feel apparent to me that that's what I was doing. Yeah. Um, Because it's not nearly as obvious as like sexual objectification and catcalling and all these really explicit ways that this can happen. Yeah. Such a good question. So, I mean, the first thing that I'm thinking about as you're describing those moments with your partner is something called the drama triangle, which is something that gets um, started within us when we experience trauma or when we're operating out of splitting. And so in the drama triangle, the world becomes split into three specific roles of people in the world. There are perpetrators, there are victims, and there are saviors. Okay. Mm. And you, you are one of these things and you can also switch between these roles depending on where you are psychologically. Hmm. So if you find yourself in any part of your life feeling like, you know, this person that I just yesterday love, you know, was feeling very yeah, close to yeah. is a perpetrator. That's a good sign that there's some objectification happening where there's a splitting mm -hmm. off into these particular roles which were also probably active in childhood mm -hmm. and are active for real in the world right we there yeah, are actual yep. victims and perpetrators in the world mm. um so i think that would be one piece is like if you kind of check the facts and check like was i actually perpetrated against in this yeah. moment right and does that line up with the roles I'm I'm setting up in this situation? Mm -hmm. So finding yourself, I mean, this honestly does feel like maybe the simplest way to put it. Finding yourself in a place of no nuance is probably a pretty good <laughs> yeah. indicator that some objectification is happening. And definitely the experience of flipping around from like so much connection and compassion to all of a sudden like, now I feel like we're enemies out of nowhere is mm -hmm. clearly something is going on there. I wouldn't necessarily have thought um, objectification before, but I can see that it, it, it puts me in a place of no nuance. So it's kind of the right. same thing. Right. Yeah. I also think about like nervous system regulation and kind of being able to track our own nervous systems. Yeah. I think that's a really important key is like really being able to tell whether you've shifted out of where we like to be, which is our social connected, what's yeah. called ventral vagal state. Have we shifted into sympathetic where we have this tunnel vision yeah, yeah. and we become, we get into that fight or flight mode, mm -hmm. or have we even shifted into kind of a collapse state? Yeah. And in those two stress states, we're not seeing with a lot of nuance, 
Um, So sometimes I think it can be helpful even just to like learn how to track where you are along that sort of nervous system hierarchy. That can be a great clue of like, if I'm not in that really connected place, there's probably some objectification happening. Okay. So then, because that's been really helpful for me, the nervous system tracking and all of that stuff. If a person is getting flipped into a stress state, is there always objectification happening? Well, so the way that I think of it is when somebody's in a stress state, there's tunnel vision, right? Just on a survival level, our system says we need to hyper-focus on this thing so we survive, even if it's a very mild stress state. So it's not necessarily intentional, like Uh, losing contact with somebody's humanity, but it's losing a section of data that probably includes some of their, their humanity. Right. Oh my gosh. That's so interesting. Do you know what I do with my partner is um, when I feel this way, usually like with very cold, rigid body language, I'll be like, can you please tell me something about your feelings and remind me that you are a whole person (laughs) and you will. And it's like, it's so helpful. It like that data comes back and I'm like, oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. So that is a really interesting way to think about it because it's such a different idea of objectification from like intentional, abusive, you know, control and power to literally just a loss of data that makes them inherently less full of a human to you. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I think it's really important to acknowledge we all will objectify one another, or we will all at least not see each other as whole beings at some point, whether it's intentional or not. Um, And I think that's part of why repair in relationship is so important because we're always going to split. We're always going to do that with, with our partners or our friends or whoever, but we can come back. And this is the thing that's missing in the kinds of families we've been talking about. There's no repair. So if we can come back Mm. and say, Ooh, I lost touch with a part of you. I lost touch with a part of me and I acted in a way that isn't aligned with who I really want to be. And I'm so sorry. Yeah. And that that's a skill. That's a very important skill to learn that a lot of people don't have. Yeah. Have you seen there's like memes that go around that are like the most uh, powerful part of movies like Encanto and I don't know, uh, Moana and all these other movies uh, in our recent history of kids movies is that it introduced millions of kids to the idea that an adult could apologize, basically, because unfortunately, that is not often what happens. Absolutely. I haven't seen those memes, but I regularly, when I watch movies like that, I'm like, this is about intergenerational trauma. Yeah, (laughs) totally. (laughs) Oh man. Okay. So this is so brilliant and I could talk about it forever, but I wanted to ask you um, something that you mentioned when we talked before is relationship OCD. It's a term that I haven't heard, but when you described it, I was like, oh yeah, I know. I I get this. I see this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, could you give us a little definition and maybe why or how that shows up or or what the experience is like? Yeah, absolutely. So relationship OCD is part of a spectrum of relationship anxiety, uh, sort of commitment anxiety, and it's on the extreme end. And when somebody has relationship OCD, they are often spending a lot of time each day worrying about the rightness of their relationship or the rightness, rightness of their partner. Okay. So it can sound like, I don't know if I'm really in love with my partner. It can sound oh, like... Yeah. Do they really love me? When they said it, I didn't totally believe them. Or it can sound like, is this the right relationship for me? Is there something better? Yeah. And now keep in mind, everybody's going to have some of those thoughts now and again. Yeah. That's pretty normal. But if you're spending hours a day worrying about that sort of thing, that's relationship OCD. Okay. And in my experience, people with relationship OCD often come from these family systems mm-hmm. where they've learned on some level that closeness is dangerous, right? In their family of origin, they were not actually treated like whole human beings and being close perhaps meant criticism, perhaps meant, you know, a lot of control. And so on some level, their body is really trying to protect them from being family again and does it in this really unpleasant way of just filling them up with all of these doubts and fears and making it such that it distracts from the actual problem, which is that attachment wounding underneath and makes them look at, well, but if my partner just looked this way, or if 
maybe if they, you know, they'll even fixate on like little things. If their voice was a little different, right? Mm. So um, basically the entire show of Seinfeld was about. <laughs> oh, don't get me started on Seinfeld. We pattern. just started watching it again. And I am like, oh my God, Seinfeld. <laughs> so it, it tends to make you be like nitpicky or critical or sort of overthinking the meaning of your partner's behaviors and attributes and everything. It can also be about yourself. So it can be like, am am I loved enough? Am I, are they, do they think I'm the right partner? Ah, Mm -hmm. but unlike a sort of veering towards anxious attachment type of experience, which is like maybe shamier and needier, this is more like trying to figure out if it can work for you, like doubt about sustainability or compatibility or whatever even if it's about you that's one version and then I think the piece where they they start to focus on themselves there it tends to be things like they went out with that person and do they have a crush on that person I like a lot of jealousy so it isn't necessarily for some people who have relationship OCD it is very much a very extreme anxious attachment response of like are they right are they cheating on me right now yeah oof it does sound horribly unpleasant, no matter which direction you're in. Yeah, no, no fun. So I guess I'm wondering then, what is the relationship between like the objectification in the family system you just described and and this? Is it about mm-hmm. the same thing we, we mentioned before of just sort of like trying to uphold a really rigid standard? Is it about something else? Well, I, I can be about upholding rigid standards. I think it also is that piece I was just mentioning of like their system is trying really hard to protect them from getting hurt again. Oh, the attachment window. Yeah, of course, of course. Oh, right. yeah, yeah. And it's it reminds me of body image stuff, right? The yeah. work that you do where it's like, seems like it's about my body. I should be fixing my body <laughs> yeah. and it doesn't get you anywhere because it's about something entirely different so the work for relationship ocd is recognizing okay these fears that are distracting me feel very compelling and i have to allow myself to go deeper and sit with what's underneath that i have to allow myself you know with ocd there there are compulsions so i have to stop myself from doing the compulsions in Mm -hmm. relationship ocd it's things like asking people do you think my partner's right for me or asking your partner for reassurance yep so not doing that and then hopefully working with a good therapist or coach to get under what's underneath that. Yeah. Um, so I feel like kind of going back to the everything is a spectrum thing, I definitely don't experience what you're describing, but I have noticed that my brain, now that I am body neutral, loves to blame my relationship when mm-hmm. I feel bad. Like yeah. it's just a super convenient thing because he's here. Mm-hmm. pretty much and um it sounds and like my he's body, pretty nice yeah <laughs> and my body no longer <laughs> counts because I like did too much work on that so it's no mm-hmm. longer the convenient sort of scapegoat that uh that it once was and so I can connect to the idea of like the distraction the mm-hmm. prevention of going to the deeper places like maybe I just feel bad yeah and I don't want to feel bad so I'm going to say you made me feel bad mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. now I have a nice compact story and uh it's your job to fix it because if you made me feel bad then you got to make me feel good so it's like an incredibly convenient mechanism yeah and I can see that it like you know as you go along the spectrum it, it stops being functional pretty quickly but it's it is one of those really interesting things where like we can talk about the harm it does but honestly props to our brains right they're clever very very clever Yeah. Um, I would love to hear then about in terms of um, staying away from intimacy or I I guess the attachment thing you're describing of this protecting you from going to that deeper, vulnerable, intimate place. Mm -hmm. What does the work of healing that look like? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So the places where you see yourself, I mean, A, you know, identifying what you just identified. I think there are places in my relationship where I make my not feeling good, my partner's problem, Mm -hmm. right? Or, or I blame them for it. 
And then, I mean, sometimes we can do this with our partner or with another support figure, but really turning back inward, okay, what's actually going on? Yeah. What's happening under there? Is there an immense amount of shame? Did some shame get triggered by something you saw that reminded you of your narcissistic parent? Right? Right. And then using, uh, you know, things like self-parenting, psychotherapy, movement to really start to move some of that shame. Um, Again, coming back to the anger piece, oftentimes when we're doing this work, we have to learn how to bring our system out of collapse through sympathetic back into that very connected place. And and that's a skill set, right? So really learning how do I support this body to feel safe again? Jessica, how unhappy are your clients when they ask for you to help them feel more confident and secure in their relationships and you tell them, it's all of this. <laughs> I do it order. very gradually. <laughs> <laughs> because again, I, especially if we're talking about someone who's like um, skill and capacity for just even feeling their own feelings. I mean, that's, that's a long road. It is a long road. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Also, I think that this is something you said before was so interesting to me is on the topic of the way we use the term feeling loved, like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. super connected to what you're describing. I'm imagining it being for some people like one of the, you know, the focuses of relationship OCD. Like I just don't feel loved or do I feel loved or do they love me or, you know, but also again, super relatable to, I think everyone, because it's one of those terms that we use to describe sort of a vague collection of stuffs. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then also sort of make it our partner's problem. I just didn't feel loved. You're right. just not making me feel loved. So uh, I would love to have you talk a little bit about your take on that term. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yes. I think words are so juicy when it comes to emotions. And mm-hmm. something I talk a lot about with clients is um, there are a lot of words that we think are emotions and they are not, they are thoughts and they are evaluations. Yeah. So feeling love, that's actually an evaluation yeah. of what has been done. Right mm-hmm. now. Can we feel love? Yeah, we can feel mm-hmm. love. Can we also feel, you know, some, I like to go back to what are the basic emotions, sad, angry, fearful, exuberant. So good acronym for that is safe. And most emotions are uh, a, a kind of flavor of those or a combination of those, right? So when you say I wasn't feeling loved, you know, if I have that experience, what's probably also, what's probably underneath that in terms of those basic emotions is I feel sad, mm-hmm. I feel afraid, mm-hmm. and I feel angry. Yeah. And so I, I just, there's so much more that can open up. If we yeah. go to those feelings rather than uh, I haven't been loved in the way that I really need to be because it becomes a way for us to own our experience rather than doing what you were describing of like, I'm just going to make it my partner's yeah. responsibility. I, I love this take in part because um, <laughs> the the work that I do is always like reminding clients that fat is not a feeling and that if you're feeling fat, there's something much more interesting underneath. And let's please, you know, get clear on that sort of coaching them through that process uh, to do for themselves as well. And so like getting more nuanced, getting more honest and accurate is just so powerful. Mm-hmm. But even more so in this way, because like, if you feel fat and then you have to identify, okay, what I really feel is like ashamed, afraid, scared, you know, whatever, uh, that can all exist just inside you. You don't usually go to someone else and be like, you've made me feel fat, please unfeel fat me. Like, but the right. love thing, it's, it's in between people. Yeah. And that means that by going to someone and saying it, and it still has this really vague sense, like they don't know what to do usually. It's not instructive. It's not connective. It's not helpful. And for a lot of people, it feels like an insult or an attack. So it's going to make things worse. Right. Right. Absolutely. Complicated. But once you start saying, I feel like hurt Uh and resentful and anxious, like so much more opens up between the two people. Right. Instead of I'm, I'm just not feeling loved. It becomes when you, you know, 
didn't spend time with me when I thought we were going to spend time together. I felt sad and I felt alone and Mm -hmm. I felt scared and I need you to hug me. I need you to carve out some time for me. Also, I think by putting it in this more nuanced way, it immediately invites the opportunity to talk about what does make you feel loved. If it's not a feeling, it's an assessment, then there are there are instructions and you can start unpacking it in a much more, you know, useful way. Yeah. Um, and that would make everybody more likely to get the feeling they want. So mm-hmm. just so helpful. I think it's also still useful to notice what word you want to use, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of I don't feel loved and to question the inquiry, what might that be tying back to in my history? Mm-hmm. You know, where did I as a kid when I didn't have the words sad, angry and fearful readily available for me to describe my experience? Where did I think to myself, I, don't, I just don't know if I'm lo- loved. Yeah. Right. And so that's part of the work, too, is really tying our present day reactions and relationships back to something in our childhood to see, OK, is is what's happening a ch- just a child part that's right. getting kicked up, that's asking for you for your attention, not your partner's attention even. Totally. Oh, so brilliant. You are amazing. This conversation was so great and helpful and just awesome. Um, I would like to ask if a listener right now is listening to this and having their mind blown and they're like, holy shit, I had no idea this was me, but this was me. I don't even know where to begin. Like what's step one? Oh, step one uh, well, I'm going to give you the, the, the low cost step one, okay. and then I'm going to give you the financially privileged step one. So the right. low cost would be to, um, look up resources about relationships as they relate to childhood trauma. We've got a lot of great ones on our website, relationshipcenter.com. We've got our podcast that touches a lot on trauma and relationships. Yeah. Um, so just to start to wrap your head, uh, your mind around, these concepts and to start to think through how do these apply to my own history and to what I'm doing in relationship. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the higher cost step one is get into psychotherapy or yeah. work with a coach who can help you break these things down, who is trauma informed, because yeah. I think the piece to remember in all this is we're talking about relational trauma and we can kind of insight our ways only so far into this kind of healing, we also need to be in relationship with people who are kind and who are emotionally available and who are invested in seeing us as whole human beings so we can have the experiential healing as well. Absolutely. So education and, you know, insight, uh, consideration, all of those things, low cost, getting a support person or team around you to help you do that and actually have that somatic experience of being in a safe container and safe relationship. Yes. And there are lower cost ways to have some of those safer relationships. For example, 12-step groups, getting a sponsor in a 12-step group. I know a lot of people who grew up in the kinds of families we're just Mm -hmm. talking about, they um, have substance abuse disorders or they will have eating disorders, or they can go to a program like uh, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Mm -hmm. Families, and they do a lot of beautiful free work around reparenting and healing from trauma. I love that. Um, I also just want to tie together for anybody who's listening to this that like it is a it is a really interesting exploration to consider this and your body image experience because we didn't go super deep into that connection. But I think that the the overlap and the relationship uh, between them is still clear. And I feel like it's so, so far from what people think of when they think oh, I'm judgy of everybody's appearance or I'm really hard on my own appearance. They don't walk around thinking, I wonder if I had a dysfunctional family system that taught me to, you know, like there's so much in this that once you name it and can explore it, you can also heal it and is not what we think of as body image healing. But that's why I wanted to have you on because it's so relevant. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Where can people find you? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, where do you live on the internet and where where can people find your work? Yeah, so you can find me at relationshipcenter.com. Um, I have a group of clinicians. I also uh, write a lot on my blog and we have a, I have a podcast with my husband called I Love You Too. 
And I'm also on Instagram. Uh, it's at Jessica and N angle, which is a little hard to rem remember. So if you go to relationshipcenter.com and scroll to the bottom, just click on the Insta link there. You'll find well, we can also put it in the show notes. So Excellent. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much for being here. This was just an incredibly enlightening and helpful mm -hmm. conversation. I hope people get a lot out of it. And I'm so grateful you came on. I'm so grateful to be here. It was such a fun conversation. Thank you, Jesse. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I'm Jesse Neeland, and I want to take a moment to thank you for listening to this episode of the This Is Not About Your Body podcast. I put out new episodes every Tuesday, so be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss it. And if you really enjoyed it, please go ahead and leave me a review. Um, also, if you're looking for more information about body neutrality or you want to work with me, you can find me at my website, jessineeland.com, or you can just purchase my book, Body Neutral, A Revolutionary Guide to Overcoming Body Image Issues, wherever you buy books, ebooks, or audiobooks. We can also connect on Instagram or TikTok. My handle is jessineeland. And because I make this uh, podcast available for free and without any sponsors or ads, you can also feel free to show your support using the Patreon link in the show notes and know that your support, if you decide to uh, participate, is always very much appreciated. Lastly, thank you to my brother, Jason Neeland, for creating the music that plays at the beginning of the show. And thank you for listening, learning, and moving toward personal and collective body liberation. <laughs> <laughs>